chapter 11, verses 1 through 23, and can be found on page 159 of your pew Bible. Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jabab, king of Maiden, with the kings of Shimron and Akshra, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills and in Napoth Dor to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and to the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mesrepath Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all of these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities except on their mound, built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of their cities. But all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western mountains, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all of these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. At the time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashadid did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. May God bless the reading of his word. So a couple times already in the service, we've referenced the fact that life is sometimes hard, and we are sometimes broken. Uh, 
Well, let's put it the other way around. Life, sometimes we're broken. And that can either be one of two th- causes, at least. Sometimes it's because life is hard. And sometimes it's just because we have a gen- genetic predisposition toward anxiety and depression. So even when life is not hard, we, you know, it, it looks hard. Uh, maybe the last couple of weeks I've been tracking uh, a church down in Florida, my, my mother's home church in Florida, because the senior pastor, who can't, he was about my age, I won't tell you, and the senior pastor was about my age, but he's very fit. You know, he runs marathons. He went out for a jog, and he had a massive heart attack. And well-meaning people intervened, and they brought him and put him in the hospital and induced a coma, you know, this, what do they call it, arctic coma in him, for a few days to see if his heart would recover. And uh, then they took him off the medication, and then his heart didn't recover, and so now he's laying there. He can breathe, but that's about all. And he has pneumonia, and so they're waiting for him. I wouldn't say this to them, but I would suppose they're waiting for him to die. You've got to realize, of course, for his family, this is a huge shock. And, of course, for the family, for the church, you've got to suppose life is hard right now. People are broken. You know, it happens. Or, recently, about a month ago, my wife and I went down to Haiti. And it's incredible, you know, given the fact that I have a genetic predisposition, at least three generations. I know only three generations of my family. But my family, the whole family line has a genetic predisposition toward anxiety and depression. And I look at Haiti, and I, we're driving along in a minivan, and we're, our lives are really great and comfortable. But you see people there on the side of the road selling, you know, little, little not stands, not stalls, just sitting there on the side of the road trying to sell, or oh, maybe gum or combs or toothpaste, next to a bunch of other people that are trying to sell the same stuff because they have no jobs. And you think, oh, I mean, how can you have a country at such poverty where the unemployment level is between 50 and 80%, depending on what your demographic is, and yet people still carry on? I'm thinking, you know, what kind of tenacity of spirit is there? Or when we had a, a nurse who works in Haiti, kind of like missionary works in Haiti, mentioned that after the earthquake, the first night after the earthquake, when she was out in the fields trying to help people, they kept singing hymns. 250,000 people died. Millions were left homeless. And they sang hymns in the fields at night. How can people... I mean, life can be hard. Sometimes it's not a moodiness. Sometimes life is just difficult. And they hang on. And one of the things that helps us hang on is this notion. The notion that God came to embrace the hardness of our lives. He came to embrace our own sin. That Christ lived in our world and knows what we go through. But he took on himself our sin and he died a horrific death for that. And so we sing that Christ's death for us. And you know, the, the great comfort and the encouragement, the strength that gives us in the worst of times, that Christ died for us of his own volition because God loves us and he loves us. And this can help us through some difficult times. Whether the difficult times are from the outside or from the inside, you know, whether it's really our circumstances are difficult or whether it's just that we're kind of emotional about it, the thought that Christ loves us enough to die for us 
can help sustain us in some very difficult times. And so this is why part, a small piece of our present text poses a problem for us. This is why the doctrines of predestination and election and reprobation pose a problem for us. Because there are some well-meaning Christians that would look at Scripture and conclude, based on careful study of Scripture, that actually maybe Christ didn't die for all of us. Maybe he really died only for some of us. And in fact, but to make it even harder, some well-meaning godly people look at Scripture and say, in fact, before time ever began, God chose to save some of us. And he chose to condemn others of us. And you can see, you know, the, the threat this poses to the notion that that Christ died for us, and that, and the rock that is, when we're in challenging or difficult times. Did Christ really die for all of us? Or has God chosen, before we were ever born, before we did anything good or bad, has God actually chosen that no matter what we do in this life, he's going to send us to hell? You know, that's the question... That's not the central question of this text, but that's a question this text poses. Let me show you, first of all, what the central issue of this text is. The central issue, oh, for those of you who are new or don't come here regularly, what we do as our pattern is we work our way through a book of Scripture. And so it happens that we're in the book of Joshua. Now, this is already a challenge because, you know, the Old Testament is kind of distant, right? It's hard to connect with the Old Testament. So it's already a challenge that we go to Joshua. But we work our way through Scripture. And that, as it happens this morning, we're in Joshua 11. And what we try to do is identify what is the main point of this section of Scripture and then how does that impact our lives. That's always what our am- ambition is, our aim is. What's, what's the point of Joshua 11? And how does it impact our lives? So let me just briefly explain to you why I'm not going to do that this morning and why we're going to look at something else in Joshua 11. But the main point of Joshua 11 is remarkably the same as the main point of Joshua 10. You know, Joshua 10, a, ca- a major city, wants to, uh, Israel is invading Canaan. You know, uh, this is a, a historical account of Israel invading the land of Canaan. And you've got, the Canaanites aren't really happy to give up their land. So what are they going to do about it? So, in chapter 10, we see that the southern half of Canaan, a major city in southern Canaan, got together, uh, formed a coalition with a variety of other cities around it, and then they attacked Israel, and they were defeated. And now in Joshua 11, what happens is, a major city in the northern part of Canaan develops a coalition with a variety of other cities in northern Canaan, and they attack Israel, and they lose. So the main point of Joshua 11 is pretty much the same as the main point of Joshua 10, which was also the main point of Joshua 2 and 3. Don't attack Israel if they invade your country. Well, you know. So, so let's not spend a lot of time on that this morning. Because we've already covered that and the implications for our lives today. Let's look at this. What I want to draw your attention to is this. Take a look. Uh, Joshua chapter 11. It's page 159. You will need your pew Bibles or you'll need a good standing knowledge of the Bible because we're going to flip through a lot of texts this morning. We're going to look at three basic texts this morning. 
So the first one, we'll start out with Joshua 11. And I want to show you where the problem is in Joshua 11. Page 159 in your pew Bible. I, if you don't have a pew Bible, fine, you, you're on your own. Find your own way through it. But I'll give you the page numbers for the pew Bible. Make life a little easier. Page 159. Look at verses 19 to 20. The author is, the author is coming to terms with this question. Given the fact that everyone who attacks Israel loses, why do they keep attacking Israel? You know, if you've developed the same strategy, or you know that other people have developed a strategy ahead of you, and it's consistently failed, what do you do? You try a new strategy, right? But no. You know, first Egypt attacks Israel, in a way. And then Sihan and Og attack Israel. And then Jericho attacks Israel. And then the southern Canaanites attack Israel. And now the northern Canaanites have to decide what to do. And what do they do? They decide to attack Israel. This strategy hasn't worked the last four or five times. What makes them think it's going to work this time? And so Joshua explains why they did it again. Verse 19. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. Only one city made peace. Why did they keep following this strategy when they knew other people had tried it and it failed? Verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally. Exterminating, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you see the problem here? In Joshua 11, why did the northern kingdoms, the northern cities of Canaan attack Israel? Because the Lord hardened their hearts to do so, so that he could destroy them totally. Whoa. So, did Jesus die for the Canaanites. You know, obviously he died much after this, but did Jesus die for people today like the Canaanites? Did Jesus die for the Romans? Did Jesus die for the Greeks? Uh, both of whom attacked Israel at different times. Did Jesus die for the Syrians who attacked Israel in Jesus' time or before Jesus' time? Did Jesus die for the Arabs, for the Saudis? Did Jesus die for the Iraqis? Did Jesus die for the contemporary Syrians or the Iranians? Or is God intentionally hardening their hearts so that he can destroy them totally? And let's not make this just about the world because, you know, obviously, that, oh, these countries are a long ways away. We don't really care so much about them. Let's make this about our families, our friends. I had a student in Singapore once, first-generation Christian, and her father died, and she wrote me an email just to let me know, or wrote me a note to let me know. And she phrased it this way. Well, God has elected not to save my father. And she was broken at the thought that her father was going to hell because God elected not to save her father. I mean, she was grateful that God elected to save her, but you can imagine she wasn't so enthusiastic about the notion that God elected not to save her father. You know, and, and Jesus says we have to love him above our fathers and mothers. But, but if it's Jesus who's determining all this, if it's God electing it, and Jesus is only dying for some people, 
This is a tough burden for us to bear for those we love who don't put their faith in Christ. If God is the one who's responsible for that. And so people, you know, we read this text, verse 20. It was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts. And if God hardened the hearts of the northern Canaanites to attack Israel, it's only one step further from that to say God hardened people, God hardens people's hearts still today so they don't accept Christ. It's only one step further. And it's a logical conclusion we draw. So let's look at this this morning. Really what we want to ask is this. Basically two questions. What does it mean when God hardens someone's heart? And that leads to the second question, which is, when God hardens a heart, does that mean that he causes people, regardless of any decision or inclination they have, does he cause people to reject Christ? Does this mean that in eternity past, God made a list? He made two lists. And he made one list of people he was going to save. And he made one list of people he was going to condemn. And then eventually he just kind of let it play out. So that some people were born and regard, you know, regardless of anything they did or wanted to do, you know, God, okay, you're, you're saved. And then this other list, regardless of anything they did or wanted to do, God says, oh, you're condemned. Is that what it means to harden the heart? Now, here's the challenge and why we have to go elsewhere from Joshua. Joshua introduces the question, but Joshua doesn't answer it. Joshua doesn't need to answer it. Because anyone who read Joshua had already read Exodus. Anyone who lived through Joshua knew the stories of Exodus. And Exodus answers the question. So we have to go back to Exodus to find out what does it mean to harden. And then we really need to go forward into the New Testament and say, how does any of this impact Christ? Because the Apostle Paul wrote about hardening in Romans 9. And he had read Exodus. And he builds on Exodus and say, how does the concept of hardening, how is that affected by Christ and his death for us? So really, we start with Joshua, but what we're going to do now is look at the concept of hardening in Exodus, and we're going to look at the concept of hardening in Romans. Now, most of you seem to still be paying attention, so let me grab you one, one, one more thought before this, particularly if you started to drift off. No, this is summertime. And, I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? I probably didn't need to tell you that. But the point is, when I was, in summertime, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I, in summertime, the only people that went to summer school were the people who flunked. You know, you didn't go to summer school if you passed. No, in fact, we, I, my father, my family moved a lot, and one year I was changing school systems, and so they put me in summer school just to work on French because this new school system, they've been doing French for years, and I hadn't been doing French for years. They wanted to give me a little French so I could walk into the new school system. I go to summer school, and the teacher says, okay, what grades did you guys get in French before? And he, I'd had just a little bit of French. He heard my grade, and he says, why are you here in summer school? You passed. You know, summer school is for people who flunk. Then we go overseas for a while. We come back. I got kids now. We come back to Acton. And now I find out now summer school is for two kinds of people. Summer school is for white people that flunk. I'm sorry. We are white people. It's okay. I'm white, okay? And you noticed, right? Uh, so it's for white people who flunk. Or it's for Asians who want to get a head start. On next year. Right? It's true. Right? I know some of you 
take calculus AB over the summer so that you can take calculus BC in the academic year. Right? Now, my point is this. Any of you that are in calculus AB in summer school, what we're going to talk about this morning is easier than calc AB. And it's a lot easier than calc BC. So if you are now doing or have ever done calc AB or BC, you have an obligation to pay attention this morning. This is easier. And if you haven't ever done calc AB or BC, then pay attention anyway, because now, you know, if you can do this, there's a hope that you can do Calc A, B, and B, C, if you want to. So, come on, connect with me here. Let's, let's follow. What does it mean when God hardens somebody? Turn back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 7. And having promised to give you the page number, let me see if I can... Okay. Exodus chapter 7, page 44. Here's where the problem starts. Exodus chapter 7 which is in page 44. Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. Notice how the problem starts. God is telling Moses, he's calling Moses, I won't give you the whole context, but he's calling Moses and he says, look, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to free my people, the Israelites who are slaves. You're going to go to Pharaoh and say, let him go. But Pharaoh won't listen. And why won't Pharaoh listen? Chapter 7, verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders, and you know about the ten signs and wonders, though I multiply all these signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. With mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions. Now this is the first reference to hardening. And what God says in chapter 7, verse 3 is, I'm gonna, you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let you go, but I'm going to go harden Pharaoh so he won't let you go. And if this is all you ever read from Exodus, that's what it sounds like happened. You know, God wanted Israel delivered, but he wanted to condemn the Egyptians. So he told Moses to deliver the Israelites, and then God was going to harden the heart of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh could perish. God chose to send Pharaoh to hell. Jesus never died for the Egyptians. You could draw that conclusion. But chapter 7 is a prediction. It's a prediction of the end outcome. The third stage of the process. As we read through the book of Exodus, we find out that God hardens Pharaoh as the third step, not the first step. Pharaoh doesn't refuse to let Israel go because God hardened his heart. God did not choose to reprobate. God did not choose to send Pharaoh to hell and there was nothing Pharaoh could do about it. When it comes to the execution, we find out that God hardening Pharaoh's heart is the third thing that happens. It's the third step. Step number one. Take a look at 7.13. I won't read all of these verses because time is limited. Uh, 7.13, 7.14, 7.22 all say the same thing. Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen. The first step is Pharaoh's heart is hard. The second step Chapter 8, verse 15 and 32. Again, I'll just read one. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief from the crisis they faced, he hardened his heart. Step number one, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Step number two, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Step number three, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 20, and verse 27. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Three steps. Pharaoh's heart was resistant to begin with. Second step. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Third step. God hardened his heart. You see? God acts third, not first. Why this matters? There's at least two kinds of, you know, concretely, in our world, there's at least two kinds of hardening. Let me illustrate both kinds. You know, you've got concrete hardens, right? You do something, concrete is just kind of like powder, right? Cement powder. And you mix water in it, and then because you've mixed water in it, it hardens. If you hadn't mixed that water in, it would never harden. Or epoxy is a kind of glue, two-part glue. You've got resin and you've got hardener. And as long as you keep those two separate, they, they don't harden. It's when you put the hardener into the resin that suddenly this thing becomes hard. That's hardening. There's another kind of hardening. Right now, I have some, in my garden, I have some butternut squash that's coming ripe. Now, when you have butternut squash, the nice thing about butternut squash is you can make it last a long time if you harden it first. What you do is, you know, either you leave it there after in the, in the field, in the garden, after the plant dies, or you take it out and you put it in the sun for a few days, and that toughens the skin. See, it's a much different idea of hardening there. Because you've already got the skin there. The skin exists to protect the vegetable, make it last a while. All you're doing is you're extending that natural process to its appropriate conclusion. You can either leave it in the field, or you can manually bring it in the house and actively harden it. But it's going to harden anyway. That's how the plant was designed. That's its nature. It hardens. So one, you're more active. The other, you're, more, you're, you're just expediting a process that's going to happen anyway. So what we have here in Exodus is Pharaoh starts out with a hard heart. And then as signs come that this is a powerful God and he should worship this God and let these people go, he hardens his heart further. He resists it. And finally, as a third step in the process, God says, okay, this is what you want. I gave you several opportunities. This is what you've determined you want. This is the direction you've insisted on heading in. So now I will harden your heart. What God does is grant him the resolve to continue in the same direction that he wants to go in the face of obvious obstacles. Anybody with a lesser will would have given up. God strengthens his resolve to do what he wants to do. God never predetermines, okay, Pharaoh, arbitrarily, I want to condemn you. So I'm going to harden you so that you have never any choice, never any opportunity for repentance. I'm going to condemn you ahead of time. And then your fate is sealed because I'm arbitrary and I like to work that way. That's not what happens. All God does is give him the strength to carry on in his chosen course of action. First, Pharaoh chose it. God merely enables him, empowers him, strengthens his resolve to do what he already wants to do. Now, how does that play out in the book of Romans? I want to show you the same thing. Paul talks about, in Romans, Paul talks about God hardening and God having mercy and God, having, and God hardening. So turn over to Romans chapter 9, which is on page 801. Begins on page 801. 
What does it mean? You know, the Apostle Paul says this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God, he quotes God saying this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He heartens whom he wants to harden. 9.15, 9.18. God does what he wants to do. God has the authority to do what he wants to do. God does what he wants to do. If you read it quickly and carelessly, you could conclude that if God wants to save somebody, he saves them. And if God wants to condemn somebody, he condemns them. But let's look at it more closely. Chapter 9, verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If God wanted to say, I will save those I want to save, I will condemn those I want to condemn, what would this text read? I mean, that's how we read it, but that's not what the text says. The text would then say, I will have mercy on whom I, will ha- on whom I have mercy, and I will condemn whom I condemn. And then we could say, okay, God is arbitrary. God chooses from eternity past who he's going to send to hell, regardless of how they live. But that's not what the text says. Take a look at 9.18. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. God will choose some and say, I am going to overcome their resistance. And God will say to others, let your will be done. God will say to some of us, my will be done. God will say to others of us, your will be done. I don't think there's any way to avoid the conclusion that God is non-egalitarian. I don't think there's any way to say that God treats everybody alike. But here is what we can't say, is that God arbitrarily chooses to condemn some, regardless of how they live. Scripture says that we've all turned our backs on God. And God graciously chooses to save some of us. He does not choose to save all. He overrules the will of some. He does not overrule the will of all. This itself creates a challenge. But it's a much different sort of challenge than supposing that God arbitrarily condemns some. Take a look also at verse 921. He uses an analogy about a potter. What does he say? Doesn't the potter have the right out of the same lump of clay to make some pottery for noble purposes, some for formal purposes, and some for common use. What what doesn't he say? He doesn't say the potter has the right to make pottery. Some of it he serves at a banquet, and others of it he throws to the floor. No potter does that. And God doesn't do that. You know, Paul could have used that analogy if that's what God does. Paul didn't do that, use that analogy because that's not what God does. Take a look also at verse, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11. The, I would make three points from Romans. First of all, God never says that people, Scripture never says that God hardening people sends them to hell. As we saw from Exodus, God hardening people gives them the resolve to carry on in the direction they choose. But he had hardened Israel. And then notice chapter 10, verse 3. Why is Israel not saved? 
you know, you can't read chapter 9 without reading chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 9, Israel is not saved. Chapter 10, why aren't they saved? Chapter 10, verse 3. What does God say? What does Scripture say? Israel is not saved because God chose to send them to hell. You won't find that. Why is Israel not saved? Chapter 10, verse 3. Since they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Why is Israel not saved? Not because of what God did, but because of what Israel did. Israel thought, like a lot of people today think, I'm good enough. I don't need God. I'm a good guy. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm good enough. I, you know, I work hard to be good and do right. I do more good than I do bad. And Israel thought, as they obeyed the law, they were righteous enough on their own. They didn't need God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not throw themselves on the mercy of Christ for salvation. They did not say, I'm unworthy of you, God. I have no way to make myself worthy. I throw myself on your mercy. Why is Israel not saved? Not because of divine predestination. Paul says in Romans 10, Israel is not saved because they did not ask God for salvation. It's not God. It's Israel. And then look at the third point from Romans. Romans chapter 11. God hardened. He gave the strength of character to fulfill their own natural desires. Secondly, Israel chose against God. That was their natural desire. And here's the third line of evidence from Romans 9 to 11, that God does not choose people for hell. Romans 11, 25 to 27. Here's Israel. Israel rejected Jesus. Well, here's Jesus. Jesus came to die for his people. He came to die for Israel. Here's Israel. First they reject. And God says, okay, that's what you want. That's what you'll have. God hardened their hearts. He gave them the courage to carry on with what they wanted to do. But then what happens in chapter 11, verses 25 to 27? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Well, chapter 20, 11, verse 25. Israel had has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's the point? Just briefly, here it is. Hardening of Israel does not mean that Israel is reprobate. The hardening of Israel does not mean that God has predetermined to send them to hell because, first of all, all God, first of all, Israel rejected Christ on its own volition. All God did in hardening was to give them the courage and consistency and resolution to carry on. And thirdly, in this text, what Paul says is, God will one day override that resolution they have made. Israel has experienced a hardening. When God hardens Israel, he hardens them in part and for a time. And there is one time, at some point, where God is going to intervene. And no longer is he going to grant them the strength to carry through on their resolution. God is going to overwhelm their desire, their resolution. Paul does not apply this to the whole world, but he does apply it to Israel. 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's hardening is only in part, and it's only temporary. He will override the natural inclination of the Israelites who oppose Jesus. Mapping this all up together, bringing it home. Oh, and by the way, if this has moved too fast for you, it's pretty much all covered briefly in that devotional that's in your bulletin. You have an opportunity to look it over later. Bottom line is this, two things. At most, what God does in hardening is this. God does not pre-select who he's going to send to hell. God does not predetermine this. At most, God grants people the tenacity to stand up to him. If we want, if we insist on standing up to God and saying, no, I do not want you, I do not want your grace, then hardening says, okay. Without hardening, who could stand up to God? But if we insist, then he may harden and give us the ability to stand up to him and to persist in our foolishness. The second point I would draw from it is this, and the practical one is this. You know, in a congregation this size, there will be people to whom God has been speaking for years. Maybe God speaks to you through your friends. Maybe God speaks to you through your parents. Maybe God speaks to you through your children, adult children. But there will be people here in a congregation this size to whom God has been speaking for years, saying, come. Typically, God does not force himself on us. But he calls us gently, invites us. And what this text warns us is that at some point, while God is very patient, at some point God may say, instead of my will be done, God may turn to us if we resist him consistently and say, okay, your will be done. What Romans 9 to 11 tell us is that God is merciful and he's compassionate, and he's patient. But his mercy and his compassion and his patience may not last forever. It'd be foolish to persist, to see how far, how long we can resist God. If God has been speaking to you and calling you, come to him. Give your life to him. He's a compassionate and merciful God. A patient God, but his patience does not last forever. Let's pray together. Father, help us that we might understand you. And that understanding you, we might embrace you. Most of all, Father, we would praise you for your love for us that set Christ to pay such a price that he might win us to salvation. We thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks, Matt.